Our next speaker and the final speaker for this afternoon is Dr. Monica Gandhi. We didn't give her a proper introduction during the panel as she ran in to <laughs> join us, but uh, as you know, Dr. Gandhi is a professor of medicine and the associate division chief for the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases, and Global Medicine at UCSF in San Francisco and leads the HIV clinic, Ward 86, at UCSF and is the director of UCSF's CIFAR. So she's going to talk to us this afternoon about primary care for people with HIV focused on immunizations. So Dr. Gandhi. Well, thank you for the last talk of the day. Really appreciate it, um, you staying in. And um, no relevant disclosures. And I'm going to try to make vaccines interesting because they're not, sometimes they can feel like primary care, but they're terribly important because I think that at this moment, you know, coming off the COVID pandemic, we really need to go back to reviving primary care. And I'll talk about some efforts in our clinic. And one, so much a part of that is preventative health and immunization. So we will talk about routine vaccinations and then mention COVID vaccination and MPOX vaccination after this recent global outbreak. So what I mean by going back to care is we started an initiative about six months ago, Ward 86, the HIV clinic for which I serve as medical director that we call the Revival of Care Initiative. And some of that came out of the setbacks that was happening with HIV during COVID. And some of it came out of the fact that um, our cardiologists, our general medicine colleagues, they're very good at preventative cardiovascular care, but actually there's been data that shows that we as HIV providers don't give statins out even when people are higher risk as high as much, meaning we are really good at HIV, but we need to work on our primary care uh, uh, initiatives, I think. And so we have four pillars of our revival of care initiative. One is to make HIV treatment and prevention as good as we can get. But the second is really preventative and primary health care. We're very interested in the um, reprieve data. We're really interested in routine vaccinations, bone health, really going back to those kind of primary preventative care. We also are very interested in working on mental health care and then substance use care. So in that spirit, um, I would ask you, have routine vaccination priorities been maintained in your clinic uh, over the past three years of the COVID pandemic? And I would just say yes or no. Like, I mean, maybe it's middling, but I'm interested in, do you think that routine vaccinations have dropped off in your clinic? Yes, see, setbacks. <laughs> this, is, this is part of what we've seen, you know, during COVID is a lot of setbacks in some of our primary care goals and our immunization goals. So there are really two places to look for the guidelines on 
what to do with routine vaccinations in the setting of HIV. One are the IDSA HIVMA guidelines, which um, you know have been updated in 2020 and was published in CID. And the second is the CDC, but there's specifically when you look at adult immunization schedules, there's a table two. And what table two does is look at specific medical conditions, people with end-stage renal disease, people with liver disease, people with diabetes, and there's a whole category for people living with HIV. And that category is divided into those with CD4 counts less than 200 and those with CD4 counts greater than 200 because of the live vaccines that we use. So. Um, this is really the table that informs our practice in immunizations. So, uh, okay, sorry about that. So, um, this is the table blown up, but we're gonna actually go through each of these infections and what we uh, should be doing in terms of at least the major recommendations for routine vaccinations. So let's start with that question. If that table is divided into those with either a CD4 percentage less than 15 or CD4 count less than 200, that really has to do with the live vaccines. So of these four answers, which of these vaccines are live attenuated virus vaccines? Is it measles, mumps, rubella, and flu mist? Influenza, um, do we add varicella and mpox on there? Is it MMR and HPV, MMR and meningococcal, or MMR and COVID? So please vote. And I hope we have a good song. Okay, this is great. Two-thirds of you said um, all four of these are live vaccines. That is actually true. That is the right answer. But MPOX is different. And so we, this question came up in the earlier session about is it okay, you know, the people most at risk for MPOX when Dr. Badima talked are those with profound immunosuppression with HIV. Can we use the MPOX vaccine? It's actually a non-replicating live vaccine. These others have some degree of replication. So it's perfectly safe to use MPOX even with low CD4 counts. But varicella, MMR, and the flu mist live vaccine are not recommended for those with low CD4 counts. So let's go through each of these categories of infections. Influenza vaccine is actually recommended once yearly for all adults and definitely in those with HIV. And there are really three kinds of influenza vaccines. There's one that's inactivated, that's the most common kind, but it's grown in eggs. So the only reason the second one had to come about, which is the recombinant form, RIV4 is for those with egg allergies. So those are all um, not live. And then the live form is the LAIV4, which is the flu mist quadrivalent is the brand name. And that is really given as a nasal vaccine. It's live and not recommended for people with low CD4 counts. So for those who are over 65, whether HIV or not, you wanna use the high dose. So use the high, there is a higher dose formulation and that quadrivalent vaccine should be given for those with HIV or older patients. Pneumococcal vaccines got a uplift recently because really if we think about Streptococcus pneumoniae, there are 92 serotypes, and all of these numbers after the pneumococcus vaccines represent the number of strains that they cover, PCV, uh, pneumococcal conjugate vaccine 13, 15, 
and then um, pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, 23. But there is a new formulation, the newest is 20. Its brand name is Prevnar 20. And this supersedes everything. So what I'm gonna show you next is kind of a complicated slide depending on what you got, 13 or 23, but I'll tell you what we're doing in our clinic. So um, importantly, once pneumococcus vaccine was incorporated into clinical practice, we absolutely saw reductions in those specific serotypes in causing severe pneumococcal disease across adult populations. So this is a very effective vaccine, and really it's the over 65 group that is most at risk for invasive pneumococcal disease. So though we recommend it for everyone with HIV, you know, in our general practice, if you're not seeing people with HIV, it's absolutely recommended for those over 65. So and this is what the CDC would lay out. It's really complicated um, in terms of how you give the pneumococcal vaccine based on your history, meaning if, you, if it's unknown or no one's had a pneumococcal vaccine before, super easy. Just give the pneumococcal vaccine 20. Just administer it once and you're done. But if you've gotten the 23, it has serotypes in it that are contained in, in, in the 13. So you either give the 15 or you give the 20. And then if you've had um, the 13, then you give the 23. And if you've had both the 13 and the 23, then you give the 23. I find that very complicated and frankly, yeah, exactly. You know what we're doing? I mean, we're just doing this. There is no harm in our, in our mind to all of the, like getting some extra. So we're just taking everyone, and I know this is not kosher, but we're taking everyone and we're giving them a PCV20 and we're done. Is that what you, is that what you're doing? This is just so, I'm sorry. So yeah, good. I'm glad that you say that. So we just, we just wipe this lake clean and we're giving everyone PCV20. We're documenting it, one and done. Good, okay, I'm so glad you said that because um, we, yeah, we, that, that we, I mean, I actually used, I put this slide together only almost for comic relief because I think this is so hard. So just, just give them PCV20. Okay, so what about diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, and hepatitis A and hepatitis B? Okay, it's the same with HIV, not having HIV. We're supposed to all be getting a tetanus vaccine every 10 years, and that's true whether you um, are living with HIV or you're not. And the only difference is that remember, any uh, with pertussis, that really pregnancy is an indication for an updated pertussis vaccine. This is a non-live vaccine. So pregnancy is, is definitely a time for pertussis vaccine. And then hepatitis A and B, and we're gonna talk about this in more detail, is hepatitis A is essentially a two-dose vaccine, and then you know if you don't get HIV total antigen positivity, IgG specifically, then you wanna give another dose. But there's something that happened recently with the hepatitis B vaccine, and this data was presented at ID Week, which I think is very interesting. So the vaccine series used to be with the old hepatitis B vaccine, uh, uh, at giving it zero, one, and then six months. But there is this Heplosov um, formulation, and I wanna talk about that because this is the data that got presented at ID Week, um, uh, which, uh, which was so exciting. So the, the problem with hepatitis A and B 
is depending on where you are with your CD4 count, you may not get that um, as good of an immune response. So you may not get that seroconversion to hepatitis A, uh, IgG, or hepatitis B surface antibody. And so we were always doing things like checking it again and wondering if people lose it and um, being concerned uh, that if they were off ART before, let's repeat the vaccination now that they're on ART. But this data with Heplosov um, was quite interesting. So before I tell you what that data is, let's, let's see what you think. So what does the recent data, this was, this was presented in October of 2022, suggest could be the best hepatitis B vaccine regimen among people with HIV? Is it conventional aluminum adjuvant anti-hepatitis B surface antigen vaccine, two doses? Is it three doses? Or is it the hepatitis B surface antigen vaccine adjuvanted with a toll-like receptor 9 against uh, agonist? So this very special adjuvant. We're really learning that adjuvants really matter. And if so, is that two doses or three doses? So please vote. Okay, so you are, okay, this is excellent because essentially, I think that's right. I think the aluminum adjuvant vaccine formulations, which was a good adjuvant, but we learned so much from COVID that the adjuvant really matters. I mean, the Novavax adjuvant matters, the Covaxin adjuvant matters. And all of that means is that this new adjuvant, which is a TLR9 agonist, actually really does enhance the immunogenicity of the hepatitis B surface antigen vaccine. So that is the Heplosov vaccine. And you would have been right that, that, that the, the traditional va um, vaccine recommendation is two doses, but the data um, that we're looking at looks like it's going to be useful um, for three, that H the people living with HIV are going to need three doses. So this was, um, just presented a late breaker. We don't have the publication yet. It was also uh, put in as an NIH press release and um, uh, because it was studied uh, in the ACTG. But essentially, three-dose course of the hepatitis, of the Heplosov, I'm going to use that uh, word, um, essentially gives a 100% hepatitis B surface antibody response in people living with HIV. And historically, when we compare it to the conventional aluminum adjuvanted hepatitis B surface antigen vaccine, those responses were between 35 and 70%. So this really is the way to go. And you want to give that extra boost. Give three doses in people living with HIV instead of the two that is recommended for, for people without HIV. Okay, so what about human papilloma vac uh, virus vaccination? When I made these slides, I didn't know about um, the uh, Ruan Barnabas's data that got just put out in press release two days ago, but and I'll tell you about that. But this is essentially um, a human papillomavirus is at this point usually recommended for children, of course. So um, adolescents, kind of pre uh, debut of sexual activity, can start as early as nine, and the number of doses um, really depends on if you're getting it younger versus older. So 15 years or older, it's a three-dose series, and if you're younger, then it's a, a two-dose series. Now, adult vaccination, really the recommendation is if you have HIV and you already got your two doses as a child, 
give an additional dose, just give that as kind of an extra. But if you never got it, then the recommendations used to be between, you know, up to the age of 26, but this is increasingly recommended that let's go all the way up to the age of 45. Because any benefit that we can get with circulating hepatitis, uh, sorry, human papillomaviruses that are carcinogenic, people are still <laughs> sexually active. And so it's really an important update that it's not up to the age of 26. With, with living with HIV, you really should um, give it all the way up to the age of 45. And what I mean by um, the data from MGH uh, that was just put out in press release two days ago is very interesting. This was a study in Africa that um, looked at one dose of HPV vaccine and uh, admittedly didn't follow out too far. We will have to get longer follow-up, but at least that one dose compared to two doses looked like it had the same rates of dysplasia over the period of follow-up. So it's very possible that it may, we may even be able to reduce the number of doses worldwide, um, which would be a huge advantage because there's been a lot of studies. It's hard to come back with a second or the third dose. But right now, for HIV, go all the way up to 45. Okay, so what about measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines? So these are live attenuated virus vaccines, but they replicate. That's the difference. They actually replicate. So truly, they are not recommended if you're living with HIV and you have a low CD4 count. If you're born before 1957, everyone is thought to have been exposed to measles. Um, you know, you can check the titer just in case. Um, and then the MMR vaccine should be updated. This is not specific for people with HIV, but if you're internationally traveling, going to somewhere with measles, then you should get an updated um, uh, dose. And then, um, and then wait until the CD4 count goes above 200 to give live vaccines. And the thing about pregnancy, it's not recommended in pregnancy either because it's a live vaccine. So for women with HIV, verify they have immunity um, before uh, they plan their pregnancy. Okay, the one issue is there's this spacing issue that we had to remember with PPD. Now often we're using quantifiron to check our um, latent TB status. But the problem is if you give the MMR vaccine first, that can actually delay the PPD conversion if you have, uh, if you have uh, um, exposure to TB. So just remember to delay your PPD by four weeks um, before you um, uh, plan to PPD. Okay, so let's turn to meningococcal vaccines. We heard a lot about this in the last talk in relationship to meningococcal B vaccine, but really um, A, C, W, and Y do not look like gonococcus. I guess meningococcus B looks more like the gonococcus, Neisseria gonococcus. So ACWY aren't gonna prevent against gonococcus, but they prevent against meningitis. So um, usually this is given in childhood. It's a two-dose series. Um, it it's, can be given in pregnancy. But for people living with HIV, essentially the recommendation is give Menactra, whether they've had it or not, give Menactra eight weeks apart in adulthood. And in fact, it's very interesting because the CDC says if there's ongoing risk, keep on giving it. Meaning I always thought it was, before I actually really wrote this talk, I was really thinking it was two doses and you're done. The recommendations are actually, if you have ongoing risk, repeat it every five years. Give a booster every five years of the meningococcal vaccine. And importantly, though we don't have a very good treatise on treating gay bisexual men without HIV, 
it is absolutely recommended for gay bisexual men. So even if you don't have HIV, in the context of your prep, in the context of, of doing sexual health, please do remember our meningococcal booster every five years with the Menactra vaccine. And then this is, you know, this has been weighed in on. So should people with HIV routinely be vaccinated against meningococcus B? I'm curious what you think. And I'm going to go by the DHHS guidelines. So, okay, yes, very interesting, okay. Two thirds, one third, going back and forth. So, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just telling you what the guidelines say at the moment. I know that we just heard a talk that meningococcus B, you know, could be helpful for gonococcus and, and, and the randomized controlled study is ongoing and the observational data is very helpful. Right now, um, the guidelines say as of April 13th, that serogroup B meningococcal vaccination is not routinely indicated for adults and adolescents with HIV. Now, I think the way to think of it is ACIP calls it a permissive guideline, shared decision making. At this point, we have decided to institute it, um, you know, at our clinic. So after the data at CROI 2023 from the IPERGAY study, the data that's really being put together observationally, we're convinced enough that it's gonna be protective against gonococcus that we're gonna do it. But right now, the guidelines are, it's recommended for these groups. If there happen to be an outbreak of serogroup B meningococcal disease, or if there's a splenius component deficiency, sickle cell disease, if you're on specific complement um, blocking agents, uh, people who work with N-meningitis, um, and it's really a two-dose series or a three-dose series, depending on the formulation. So I, you know, again, just like we're doing PCV20 and everyone, we've also decided to simplify this. Okay, varicella zoster vaccine is our um, last live attenuated virus vaccine that replicates. Remember, MPOX doesn't replicate. Um, and it is a two-dose series usually, but for people living with HIV over 50, Shingrix vaccine is indicated at two doses. People can have side effects with this. They often report that, but it is two doses, age 50 years and older. Okay, what about the COVID vaccines? So we um, actually have four in this country, as you know, the Moderna, the Pfizer, the Novavax, and the Johnson & Johnson. There are actually um, eight approved vaccines by the WHO worldwide. Those three on the bottom are all whole virus inactivated vaccines, Sinopharm, Sinovac, and Covaxin, but we don't have those in this country. And then um, the top six are all involved the spike protein. The spike protein, of course, is this piece of the virus that sticks out and um, sticks to the uh, host cell through the ACE2 receptor. And the three spike protein vaccine formulations are divided into three types. There's the mRNA vaccine technology, which this is the first pathogen that we've used it for in a widespread way, but mRNA vaccines are being used in cancer, and this was developed for the MERS pandemic in 2011. We just didn't need it because it, um, you know, very, very much was a, was a relatively low-grade coronavirus pandemic. And then there's the DNA virus vaccines, which are ensconced with a, into a benign adenovirus, and that's Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and the Sputnik V vaccine. And then there's the one, um, at least approved in this country, traditional vaccine, traditional meaning a protein combined with an adjuvant, 
the spike protein combined with the adjuvant, and that's the Novavax vaccine here. And um, we do have to remember, because this really went into the FDA guidance that came out on April 18th, and the WHO guidance is that you know antibodies are going to rise with the vaccine, but they are going to come down. It's actually why we don't repeat antibodies with our measles vaccine that we got as children. We don't actually, are, are, you know, we don't repeat antibodies and keep on boosting because we assume that we've developed T cell and B cell immunity, and T cells really prevent severe disease in COVID-19. And then the memory B cells that are generated by the vaccines or natural infection will make more antibodies if you see the virus in the future aided by T cells. And so though we've had all these variants, as you know, it's really interesting that the T cell response is so broad across the spike protein that it's managed to stay preserved. Even if you got a vaccine against the alpha variant, that still protects you against the Omicron variant because the T cell response is so in breadth across the spike protein. And then lots of nice papers about how B cells, if you develop B cells to your vaccine or your natural infection, that if they see the, a variant in the future, XBB 1.16, they will develop antibodies directed against that variant. That's what adaptive immunity means. They're not gonna develop, they're not stuffed full of antibodies. They adapt and produce new antibodies against the variant that they see. So we've had these four um, major variants leading up to Omicron. Alpha and Delta were really the widespread variants. Beta and Gamma stayed relatively restricted to where they were first identified. And now we're in Omicron and in all its different offshoots. And really, it was di first identified on November 26, 2021, identified first in South Africa. And it's these Omicron and all its subvariants now we're in the XBB phase have been so transmissible that there was an incredible amount of natural immunity that developed um, over the already vaccine-induced immunity that we were already seeing in the world. And at this point, as of November 2022, the NIH Serohub data uh, um, showed us that 99.99% of the US population had anti-spike antibodies, either to, um, uh, that develops either from the vaccine or from having seen the infection. 89.4% of the US population in November had anti-nucleocapsid antibodies. That was only developed if you've seen um, the infection. And so the FDA on April 18th simplified the whole booster recommendation. And they essentially said, and this is pretty much in line with the rest of the world, you need boosters, but only if you have immunocompromised or if you're over 65. And those booster recommendations are likely to be made whenever there's a rise in infections, like XBB 1.16 is causing a rise in infections, and at some point it will settle into once yearly, but immunocompromised and older people. This was actually a big deal. There's a lot of like phones going off. Today was kind of a um, big day, but today um, the WHO declared the, the global health emergency. Um, of COVID-19 is over. They don't mean that it's over in the sense that COVID is never gonna be over. It doesn't have the features of an eradicable pathogen. You can't kill 30 species of animals, but essentially they, at this point, the deaths are low enough in the world that today was the day that the WHO has declared this emergency over, so it was quite historic. Yes, I think it's a big deal. It's been a long three years. <laughs> 
Um, and, and this, I think, is the best study that shows us who really needs boosters um, uh, across the planet. This was a Lancet study um, published across 30 million people who had received two doses of the vaccine in the UK. And if you got two doses of the vaccine, those who really needed the third were those over 80, those with immunocompromise, and those with um, five or, more, four, five or more, more comorbidities. So those are going to be the populations that will need boosters going forward. And then let's end with MPOX. We already talked this morning with Dr. Badimo's lecture that MPOX has now joined the list of um, vaccinations that we're going to need routinely in those living with HIV. Now, importantly, it's very interesting to see that smallpox was eradicated in 1980. And remember, the first report of HIV was in 1981. So we've never had, th these, these are all a family of very famous viruses. They're called orthopox viruses. And the four famous cousins are smallpox, cowpox, mpox, formerly called monkeypox, and vaccinia. And we've, so we've never seen smallpox with HIV. We've never had an orthopox virus and HIV at the same time. This was the first time. And mpox really emerged as an opportunistic infection, but we didn't know that was going to happen. There is something about HIV that really potentiated mpox's effects. And so this very large global outbreak occurred. I mean, actually what happened is that this, it's not like mpox hasn't been circulating. It's been circulating in endemic regions in West and Central Africa really since smallpox vaccination wore off. The mass vaccination campaign started, stopped around 1979 across the planet. And since then, you needed a generation. And then over the last decade or so, we have been seeing mpox outbreaks in West and Central Africa. It's found in rodent populations. And we always thought, oh, this is a rodent exposure. But then May uh, 2nd, big deal, 2022, started seeing this global outbreak. And it was really among gay and bisexual men. And now we're at 88,000 cases, 120 deaths, and 110 non-endemic countries reported mpox. It started declining in the third week of August, and it's almost gone now, but this was extremely dramatic. And so I don't have time to actually ask this question, but I will say that the approximate rate of HIV infection among cases in the mpox outbreak was, even though it's mostly in gay and bisexual men, was 40%. And of course, 40% of gay and bisexual men are not living with HIV. So there's some potentiation that's occurring here. And then beyond that, we already talked this morning that there is something about having profound immunosuppression that is associated with severe mpox. This was coincided with the CROI 2023 conference, this Lancet paper, and was presented at CROI, but really severe mpox manifestations in those with very low CD4 counts. It was really those with CD4 counts less than 100 that were most affected and unfortunately had a higher mortality. So this is an OI. That's how we define it. And people with, M M uh, with HIV should receive mpox vaccination. Luckily, we didn't need to develop a vaccine de novo. We had smallpox vaccines. It was being given out to the military for, you know, even after er global eradication. And this is the, the safest one. There's an AKM 2000, but Genius emerged as, a, they're both live actually, but again, it doesn't replicate, so it's very safe. And the Genius vaccine really is very effective against mpox. So now, Two doses of Genius vaccine should be given to any person living with HIV and gay and bisexual men without HIV four weeks apart. Now, a lot of people have received this vaccine at this point, but if for some reason they haven't, this should really be part of our routine vaccine recommendations going forward for those of us who treat HIV. 
getting super safe can absolutely use it in low CD4 counts. Natural immunity is likely protective. Some will come to you and they say, I had an MPOX, aren't I okay? But there, there's, there's been a, I mean, there's, it's case reports, but there's been a couple of reinfections after natural infection, so I would go ahead and give the vaccine. And so that's my conclusion. Routine vaccinations, MPOX and COVID, big day today. I'm gonna remember May 5th, 2023. It's been three years, and, um, and let's get back to some of our routine care, including vaccines. Thank you. So again, we finished off with the bang, a wonderful talk, so thank you, Dr. Gandhi. And we have a number of questions that we're gonna get to. I have to get past the GC ones. So, all right, um, let's start with hepatitis B. Why don't we assume antibody memory in HBV post-series? No, this, oh, I think this is such a good question because, um, you know, Actually, this, there's been criticism that, that you can't chase antibodies. I mean, that's kind of what the booster vaccination campaign with COVID um, has received criticism because antibodies will come down with time. It's just, it's just totally natural. If I had antibodies for every infection and vaccine I've ever seen, I would just not be able to move because my blood would be as thick as paste. So antibodies will come down. And um, so you do, in a way, you do um, assume T cell and B cell immunity to hepatitis B? I think it's a very good question, and the question is, will we end up thinking of things differently after the COVID-19 pandemic? Will we start thinking of, we don't actually check antibodies routinely for all of our childhood vaccines. Do we really need um, to keep on chasing hepatitis B surface antibody? The only, I personally only chase it if they've core antibody positive, meaning if they've um, actually had natural infection with hepatitis B, and then they could lose it and then recrudesce. But I'm not so worried that they lose their hepatitis B surface antibody. I, T cells are important. So keeping in the HBV for a moment, um, issues with insurance coverage with the new Heplosev um, HBV vaccine, how do we overcome that? Any tips? Yeah, that's a very good question because I pre that was hot off the press data. NIH press release, but actually it's not yet made its way onto guidelines that you would like wrote, write to an insurance company and show it to guidelines. So what I do, what we've done is we actually show them the NIH press release. I mean, it will come out and then it will go to guidelines, but anything that's new, I always send them press releases. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's a tip. All right. Um, Again, given the Heplosav B times three for people with HIV, what do you do if patients have already received five or six doses of the old hepatitis B vaccines but never had measurable antibodies? I, I, I mean, you know, up to 60% won't have measurable antibodies because that old vaccine formulation really didn't generate the immunogenicity that we needed in people living with HIV, so I start from scratch. And I, just like we did with PCV20, I would give three doses of the Hepslovav. Very safe uh, vaccine. And just one last uh, question on a Heplosav. So um, what was the age range in the Heplosav times three inoculation study? 
You I'm did really it work in older patients. I'm really sorry that I don't know that. Uh, I don't know that, and I will look back at that. I don't know. Okay, so we'll have to look that up. Yeah. How about at the microphone? It's the five three seven nine ACG. If someone got like the Gardasil two or four in the past, do you recommend them to get the booster for the Gardasil nine? So yes, if they are living with HIV, yes, because that is. I mean, no matter what they got in childhood, there's this kind of ex just give them an extra boost anyway, and so why not do the nine? Just one, not three? Just one, okay. not three. Okay. Yes. And how about HPV? Should people with HIV get an HPV vaccine if they have HPV but not 16 or 18 or the high-risk subtypes? Yes. So that's the whole point of the HPV vaccine. They're specifically trying to focus on 16, 18, 31, 33, the high-risk subtypes. And so you can have HPV all you want, but you want to really immunize against the ones that end up leading to cervical anal tracheal cancer. So yes, definitely get it. Okay. Uh, this is going on to... Um, immunosuppressants and who you consider to be immunosuppressed for new booster recommendations for COVID, I assume. Doesn't say that in the question, but would you consider people on immunosuppressive agents or agents that antagonize some form of immune system function like Humira? Are they, the, are they among the people you would encourage to get boosted? Yes, um, I, I would say any, like err on the side of any immunosuppressant, why not get a booster, they're really safe. Um, one thing I will say that really convinced me how well these vaccines worked, I know this is a personal anecdote, but my father was 88, he was going through B-cell lymphoma treatment, and because all of his three children are like doctors and two of them are ID doctors, we checked his COVID antibodies in the middle of chemotherapy, like really high dose chemotherapy. and. They were sky high, even in the middle of chemotherapy. I, I think we had to remember that these mRNA vaccines, though they've had controversy around them, which is very sad, they're extremely powerful because instead of making, giving you a protein that you're gonna break down, you give the template, you give the recipe book for the protein. So you make really high levels of protein and you raise a really strong immune response. So anyone in immunosuppressants, I would go straight for mRNA vaccines. And you know you can give boosters, but I think we should reassure our patient populations, and rheumatologists are doing that, that they work really well. These mRNA vaccines are quite powerful. Okie doke. Um, let's move on to, uh, I guess this is also in the vein of HPV. Um, how about in people with HIV who have anal condylomas or oral pharyngeal condylomas, would they also be candidates for HPV vaccination? I mean, that's such an interesting question because it's kind of like a therapeutic vaccination <laughs> question. You've already developed some manifestation of HPV, and I see no harm whatsoever. And there was no, nothing in the recommendations that said that would be contraindicated in any way. And More that it's the 45 the thing that was interesting. Yeah. 45 H, yeah. yeah. Can somebody turn up that microphone? We can't cool hear beans. the questions. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful talk. I love vaccine talks because everything I knew for sure last year, not so much. <laughs> um, this is kind of more philosophical, so I just want to know what you think about. Um, vaccines are generally only covered for that which they're approved. And so, for example, you, the uh, meningitis B vaccine is only approved up to age 25. The, double-dose flu vax is only after age 65. 
Uh, so I guess the question is, how guilty should I feel about not getting prior approval, or what's your experience in actually getting prior approval for these things that are just, it's not even FDA approved for it. No, I've never gotten approval off a press release. That's like life-changing, no, but I, you know I just. You know what's so strange, and, and I'm just, we're just very lucky. Um, our public insurance in California, and we have Medicaid expansion, has been really, uh, and I only deal with public insurance because I work at that clinic has been really easy and I'm not I'm not even sure how to explain that so yeah. I don't know what to do with private insurance in, and in our system do... the patient's going to get a $300 bill for a $45 okay. shot then you know well, then the other thing I'll say that I did, if you go back to that slide with the Hepcidin vaccine in people living with HIV even after two doses it was pretty good it was very good and it the, got up to 100% right. with three but it was yeah. like 92% or something with two so Maybe that's in my okay. head, that's like, right. The, yeah. the regular flu shot ain't bad. It'd be nice. Exactly. To get, yeah. Okay. So maybe it's okay until we get it on the guidelines. Thank you. And uh, question that just came in about that: Would you give them a third dose if they, if you were able to measure antibody and they already have antibody after two doses of Heplosav? I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't think there's any way to know the answer of that. Like, if that wouldn't make the the um, the response more enduring. But right now, I think maybe not, because it works really well in just two doses for any population that isn't living with HIV. And as we all know, HIV is a very big range. And if you have a C4 count of 900, I bet two doses is just fine. OK, and just a quick note, the Heplosab trial that you quoted had people with HIV aged 18 to 70. Thank you. OK. Um, Let's see, where on the body would you recommend placing an MPOX vaccine? It can leave quite a scar. Yeah, that actually was really problem. That was a very traumatic time, I'm sure, for those of you who are seeing MPOX and then seeing the scarring of the Genius vaccine. So um, we, uh, sort of on patients' requests, did it kind of where they wanted. I mean, it's usually in the arm. and. Um, and uh, but if patients wanted it in the IM, in the IM region in the leg, then we did that as well. Um, we also actually did go out longer between the two doses. And remember that brief period of time when you could give it subcutaneously and not IM. And it, we, mm -hmm. we did that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and if any of dose. you are old enough to have gotten a smallpox vaccine, yes. that also leaves quite a scar. That's how you can tell somebody had it yeah. before because my scar is still there. <laughs> um, let's see, one last, I think I've covered, there's, okay, one more question on Menactra versus Menbio. Um, some guidelines say administer Menactra at least four weeks after completion of pneumococcal vaccination, but MBO you can give co-administered, is that? That is true, that okay. is true actually. So space out the Menactra and the, pre and the Prevnar, but it right. doesn't matter about me. I think, unless someone wants to come to, oh, there's one oh, last no. comment, but I think we're over, oh, we have one at the microphone. So I'll let you have the last word, okay, and then we're gonna have to close. First of all, it was a great talk, Monica, and Thank you. really quickly, I'm seeing a number of people are coming into my practice that were never vaccinated against HPV. They're in their 50s, and um, they have condyloma, usually anal condyloma, that's low risk. Do you, I mean, is it worth vaccinating them? 
I always think, well, I just love vaccines. Like, why not? I don't know. I mean, you're still have people have they, they sex. De- they definitely. I'm from Florida, so it definitely doesn't get paid for. Nothing oh, gets paid for. But, okay. but aside from the payment. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think if you're having sex, you are you are at risk for getting suddenly a 16. And why not? I I just I'm not even sure why we went to 26, as if like sex stops at 26, and then suddenly we went to 45. <laughs> No, I think the assumption was people were already <laughs> infected. Too late. Oh, okay, it's too late. But, but I agree with you. It's a pretty benign vaccine. So why Very wouldn't benign you? Vaccine. Yeah. All right. So thank you, Monica. All right. I just have a couple of concluding remarks for those of you who stayed with us to the end, and I want to thank the presenters and you all for your attention. I think these were great talks. I learned a lot. And even though I was trying to uh, multitask while I was listening, I still learned a lot. And uh, I hope you all did too. Evaluations and, let's see, and information on how to claim your CME credits will be available um, by 5 p.m. today. This is flipping along here. I just, we just would like to remind you of an upcoming state-of-the-art um, meeting on long COVID. And as you all know, this is a, a really uh, important complication of COVID, looking at pathogenesis management, clinical trial updates, and the patient perspective. This will be a half-day virtual course, so you can tune in at your leisure and we'll cover a lot of topics that were presented at Croy and in subsequent publications on long COVID, so really good symposium. Um, topics in antiviral medicine for anything that happened at Croy that didn't get reviewed today, you can find available in uh, topics in antiviral therapy. We have a number of dialogues on the IASUSA website dialogue series for COVID-19 and other urgent virus outbreaks, and these continue to, will continue to be scheduled throughout the year. And hopefully you'll be able to uh, get useful information out of these dialogue series. So I'll just end there and thank you all for your participation. Safe travels home and hope to see you next year.